WTBN Pinellas Park, W262CP Bayonet Point. Brought to you by Moss Nissan. Portions of this hour have been pre-recorded for broadcast at this time. Odyssey. The following program was pre-recorded for broadcast at this time. Up next is Verse by Verse, sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries. Now, how does a man go from stealing money from people to being generous in giving money to people? It's called being born again. It's called being regenerated. It's called salvation. The salvation that really transforms your character and your heart and changes you. You go from being a miser and a taker to being an open-hearted, generous giver. And that's why Jesus so emphatically declared to Zacchaeus that he was a saved man. In order to inspire the Corinthians to give generously, Paul, in 2 Corinthians 8, told about the generosity of the Macedonians. He began by saying, Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given to the churches of Macedonia. While we may be moved by compassion towards various needs, our real motive in giving is an appreciation for and a result of the grace God has shown to us. If we neglect that appreciation and stifle God's voice, how can we expect His blessings? Hi, welcome to Verse by Verse with Pastor Teacher Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. We're well into a series of studies on the nature of the church. Pastor Steve teaches expositorily, or a verse at a time. As he was teaching in Matthew 16, he came to Peter's inspired declaration that Jesus was the Son of God, and Jesus' response that he would build his church on the teaching of that fact. Jesus' first brief mention of the church deserves some attention, so that's why we are examining so thoroughly the nature of the church. We've already considered the church's founder, builder, and government. Now let's continue with a look at its funding. I once read about an athlete in the circus who used to put on amazing displays of physical power for audiences. At the conclusion of each show, he would impress the people by demonstrating his ability to squeeze an orange dry. And after completing the exhibition of strength, he would then turn to his audience and challenge them to produce anyone who could extract even one drop of juice from the squeezed and crushed fruit. Well, on one occasion, a small man in the crowd accepted the challenge and stepped forward. His size was so diminutive and his appearance so unimpressive that the spectators actually began to laugh. Undaunted, the man stepped onto the stage and took the shriveled up piece of fruit from the circus strongman. Then he braced himself and slowly and firmly compressed his right hand. The crowd was absolutely silent. All eyes were fastened upon this man as he continued to tighten his fist. A moment or two elapsed and then to everyone's amazement, especially the circus athlete, a drop of orange juice formed and dripped to the ground. As the cheers began to subside, the circus athlete called the man forward, asked him his name, and then invited him to tell the audience how he had developed such incredible strength that he could squeeze a drop of juice out of a shriveled up piece of rind when there appeared to be nothing left in the orange. Nothing to it, replied the man. And then with a grin on his face, he added, I happen to be the treasurer of the local Baptist church. 
You, you'll get it. Those of you, you'll get it in a moment. There really is a connection here because, with all due respect to those church treasurers and leaders who are men of financial integrity, there are many, frankly, who are not, and they can be quite proficient in squeezing money out of people. See, that's the connection: squeezing money out of people. But that really isn't God's plan for giving at all. The Lord doesn't exploit financially his people, nor does he pressure anyone into giving. Instead, he provides clear teaching from his word concerning our responsibility to monetarily support the ministry of his church. And some of the clearest teaching in scripture concerning our responsibility to financially give to the ministry is found in a passage that we began to look at, and that is 2 Corinthians chapter 8. So I invite you to open your Bibles to the second letter of Paul to the Corinthians, known as 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and I want to read to you verses 1 through 5. We only had time last week to cover about half of, of this passage, but we're going to, Lord willing, complete it today. Paul writes, Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of affliction their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. And this, not as we had expected, But they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. Now, the reason we are looking at this particular passage of Scripture when we have been studying the Gospel of Matthew for so long is because in the Gospel of Matthew, we are looking from chapter 16 at a particular passage of Scripture focusing on the nature of the church. As you will recall from our studies in Matthew 16, it's there that Jesus first mentioned the, the concept and even the word church. But he didn't just speak of the church. He, he spoke of the nature of the church, features of the church. He revealed some very vital information about what the church would be like, this church that he was soon to create. First, he revealed the church would be built upon a foundation as firm and unshakable as a solid rock. And that foundation that he had in mind was the word of God, specifically the gospel preaching of the apostle Peter in the early days of the church when so many responded to the message of salvation. And that's why Jesus said, you are Peter, you are rock. That's, that's what Peter means. You are rock. And upon this rock, meaning his bold and courageous preaching of the gospel, I'll build my church. Secondly, our Lord taught in Matthew 16 that he would be the sovereign head and ruler over this church that he would create. Remember, the church is people, not an organization, not a building. When he said, I will build my church, he meant that he would be the one responsible for bringing lost people into his kingdom. He sovereignly draws us. He has elected us to salvation. He is the one who who converts sinners to himself and they form the church. But that's not all. Not only would his headship mean that he was responsible for bringing about the conversion of those who formed his church, but once they were saved, he also said that he would reign over the church and and rule them as the sovereign king of the church. That's why he said, my church, 
I will build, I will be the one bringing people into the kingdom, but it will be my church. It belongs not to man, not to an organization, not to a denomination, not even to a congregation of people. It exclusively belongs to Christ. It is his church. Therefore, as sovereign ruler and Lord over the church, Jesus is the one responsible for providing everything his people need to carry on ministry. And that includes the church's ongoing financial needs. And he does provide. He absolutely provides, but he doesn't do it by squeezing money out of people or by the use of creative gimmicks or manipulative devices that promote giving. Instead, our Lord simply teaches us in his word that the way that he provides for the financial needs of his people, his church, is through the generosity of his people. Do you get that? In other words, his plan for meeting the financial needs of his church is to move in the hearts of Christians to support the ministries of their local churches by being generous in their giving. That is New Testament giving in a nutshell. But there are a lot of points and information packed into that. And and that's where our study from 2 Corinthians chapter 8 comes in. Because as we saw, these verses give us a whole lot of information and details about giving. Because what Paul does is he tells us about a group of extremely generous Christians in various churches around an area known as Macedonia. That would be today northern Greece. It would be part of of Europe. And Paul's purpose for telling the Corinthian church about these Macedonian Christians was to stir them up, to encourage the church at Corinth to be generous like the Macedonians. They were generous. Paul puts them on display and says, you at Corinth need to be just as generous. And certainly the application is for us to be generous as as believers as well, for all believers to be generous like the Macedonians. And that's very important because some of us have never heard about generosity. Some of us have never thought about it. I suspect that there are some at Lakeside who give very little, if anything, and I know that there are others who are very generous in their giving. But when it comes to generosity, some who either don't give or give very little have never, it just never heard about it. Sounds like a foreign uh, concept. If anything enters their minds about giving, it is usually the 10% tithe law and nothing more. But I want you to know, and I reiterate this, and I said this last week, I'll say it again, that is not what the Bible teaches. The the Bible does not teach that we are to simply give 10%. Even the Jewish person living in Old Testament times under the Mosaic law didn't give 10% of his income. He gave closer to 30% of his income because the law, the Mosaic law, required several tithes. Never one, but several tithes. And make no mistake about it, it was required. These tithes were required because they were mandatory taxes given to the government for the religious upkeep of the nation of Israel. But understand that tithing under the Mosaic law was never considered the same as a free will offering that a Jewish believer gave voluntarily out of love and devotion to the Lord. That's not what a tithe was. He didn't have an option of tithing. It was a tax that was required. However, the Jewish believers, I said during Old Testament times, did give 
free will love offerings to the Lord with no percentage attached to it, no amount ever mentioned. For example, in Proverbs 3, verse 9, we read this, honor the Lord from your wealth. Now, it doesn't say with 10%, 20%, 30%, 5%. It doesn't say, just honor the Lord from your wealth. What it does go on to say is this, and from the first of all your produce, that's called the first fruits of all your produce. Now, what does that mean, the first of all your produce? Well, here's how one Bible teacher explained the concept of a Jewish person giving the first of their produce. Of course, this is in an agricultural uh, setting. He writes this, an Israelite gave the first fruits of his crop to God. When the first fruits came up, he would scoop them up, take them to the temple, and offer them to the Lord. The beauty of this was that he hadn't yet harvested the crop, and he didn't even know how much he would have. He was giving away the first fruits without knowing what the rest of the crop would be like. He was investing with God voluntarily. He was living by faith. No specific amount was required in this. End of quote. In other words, to give God your first fruits spoke of generosity towards him as well as faith because you were giving him the best that you had. You were honoring him with the best, the first of all your produce and doing it with faith that he was going to meet your needs by giving you a healthy harvest to follow. Now, I understand we live in a different culture. We don't live in an agricultural setting where first fruits are directly applicable to us, but It is in this same spirit and principle of financial generosity that Paul addresses the church at Corinth about these Christians from Macedonia, these who were so liberal in their giving. And as we've already noted, his purpose in writing about these Macedonians and their financial support of the poor believers in Jerusalem, that's why they were giving to help a fellow church in Jerusalem who uh, needed their resources, he wrote this to encourage every Christian to be generous in our giving. Now, it's important for us to understand that Paul is not simply telling us about the generosity of these Macedonians in order to commend them, but rather to motivate us, to motivate the Corinthians, to motivate us today. And lest you think this is not a very interesting subject or a significant subject for us to study, then you should be aware of the fact that the Bible considers the issue of money extremely important. See, the scriptures mention wealth and poverty more than 2,000 times, which is twice as many times as it mentions the subjects of faith and prayer. I think that's a rather significant Statistic, and Jesus had more to say about financial stewardship than about heaven and hell combined. In fact, did you know that one out of every 10 verses in the Gospels deal with the subject of money in some way? And consider this, that of the 38 parables that our Lord gave, 16 of them touch on how to handle money and earthly possessions. Now, why did Jesus speak so often about money? Well, unlike so many religious leaders today, our Lord was not a fundraiser. He didn't speak about money to generate funds for his personal needs. The reason he spoke about finances so often is because he, he knew that the natural tendency of all of us is to let money control and dictate our behavior. We often make it our idol. We often covet the possessions of others. 
We often selfishly consume material goods upon ourselves without any consideration of the needs of others. See, money plays such an important role in our lives that we need constant direction, biblical direction, godly direction on issues relating to it. And so, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, the Spirit of God directed the Apostle Paul to address one of these important financial issues, and that is the issue of generosity in supporting the Lord's work. And the way Paul does this, as we've seen, is he puts the Macedonians on display, and he says, in essence, you want to know what a generous church looks like? You want to know what generous Christians look like? Here it is. Here's a picture of generosity. If we look at the church at Macedonia, we see four characteristics that Paul lays out for us of a generous church. Folks, this is our model as a church, The Macedonians are models for us in our own personal lives. Now, we looked at the first two characteristics of a generous church. We're going to quickly review those and add some more to it and then uh, see two more characteristics. The first characteristic of a generous church is that their giving is always motivated by the grace of God. Verse 1 says, Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. It's interesting that when Paul first introduces the subject of giving, the number one issue he addresses before anything else is the issue of motivation. Why did these Macedonians give their money for the church at Jerusalem? What was it that motivated these Gentile Christians to give to these Jewish believers in far off Jerusalem? Did they have a a special place in their heart for Israel? They might have, but that's not why they, they gave. Was it because they felt sorry for these poor saints? They might have, but once again, that's not why they they gave. What motivated them to be so generous in their giving, Paul says, was the grace of God in their own lives. That's what he means when he says, we wish to make known to you the grace of God, which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. In other words, knowing how kind and how generous God had been to them by saving them and bestowing upon them all of his riches in Christ, these folks felt compelled to be kind and generous to their brethren in Jerusalem. That's precisely what Paul means. Now, let me reiterate a critical point. One of the strongest evidences that you have experienced genuine conversion is that you will have a heart to share your physical and financial resources with others. And one of the, I think, greatest biblical stories that illustrates and supports this truth is the story of the conversion of a man named Zacchaeus. Let's look there. Luke chapter 19. This is uh, Zacchaeus, who in the children's song is called that wee little man. Zacchaeus, Luke chapter 19. It's very interesting. We read this, starting in verse 1. Speaking of Christ, he entered Jericho. And was passing through, and there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was, and he was unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. By the way, one of the times I was in Jerusalem, I saw a tree and said, this was the tree that Zacchaeus climbed up, only... We don't know what tree he climbed up. And the interesting thing to me is his name was misspelt. 
I mean, if you're going to try to have a tourist thing, get the name right. But anyway, he climbed up, we know, a sycamore tree there. And when Jesus came, verse 5, to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. And he hurried and came down and received him gladly. When they, that's the the crowd around him, saw saw this, they all began to grumble, saying, he has gone to to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, today, salvation has come to this house because he too, is a son of Abraham. For the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Now, as a tax collector, understand that Zacchaeus was a Jewish man who worked for the Roman authorities. And because of that, he was despised by his fellow Jews. But in addition to that, because he worked for the enemy, he was despised also because tax collectors were cheaters. These were people who took more money than they needed to from the Jewish people. They often cheated their fellow Jews, and so they were despised. But in meeting Christ, notice that his attitude, the attitude of Zacchaeus towards money, was radically altered. It was changed, so much so that he pledged half of his possessions for the poor, as well as promising to reimburse those he had defrauded fourfold. Now, that's significant. Why is this significant and impressive? Because under the Mosaic law, a man who acquired money by defrauding people was required to make restitution by paying back the money first in its entirety, and then he was to add only one-fifth of the amount. But Zacchaeus went way beyond that. Notice he didn't say, I give back a tithe or even one-fifth. He offered to generously reimburse those he had cheated nearly four times what was required by the law. And on top of that, he said, Lord, I give half of my possessions to the poor. This was a wealthy man. But now he has a change of heart concerning money. Now, how does a man go from stealing money from people to being generous in giving money to people? It's called being born again. It's called being regenerated. It's called salvation. The salvation that really transforms your character and your heart and changes you. You go from being a miser and a taker to being an open-hearted, generous giver. And that's why Jesus so emphatically declared to Zacchaeus that he was a saved man. He said, today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. In other words, like Abraham, this man has also come to experience saving faith. And his new attitude towards money reveals that he is truly a converted man. That's precisely what Paul says happened with the Christians in Macedonia. They had experienced the grace of God and salvation, and it was evidenced by their generosity. Now, folks, take this truth to heart. Your attitude towards money and what you do with money are very valid indicators of your spiritual condition. Those who are saved and are experiencing healthy spiritual growth will bear the fruit of generosity. See, it's not the size of your bank account or your present financial circumstances, whether they be good or bad, that determines whether or not you'll be generous. It is the state 
of your heart. It is the state of your relationship with the Lord. And the proof of this that is that it has nothing to do with your bank accounts is that these Macedonian Christians were incredibly generous in spite of the fact that they lived under awful circumstances. It's been said that J.D. Rockefeller, when asked how much money is enough, said, just one more dollar. I'm not sure if he really said that, but that's how a lot of us live, even a lot of people who are beneficiaries of salvation through God's amazing grace. The late radio preacher Adrian Rogers had a more biblical perspective. He said that if you're able to do what God wants you to do, then that is enough money. Thanks for tuning in today to Verse by Verse. Pastor Steve Kreloff is our study leader, and we're taking a close look at the nature of the church. Pastor Steve is the teaching pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida, a position he's held since 1981. If you'd like to know more about Lakeside, check out their website, lakesidechapel.com. Or stop in some Sunday. The address is 1893 Sunset Point Road in Clearwater, Florida. Verse by Verse is a listener-supported ministry of Lakeside. You can find out how to help keep these programs on the air, or you can download any of our hundreds of broadcasts at versebyverseradio.org. This is your announcer, Jerry Peterson. Let me ask you a question. When you write your check to the church for the offering, how do you decide?